This morning's reading is taken from Galatians chapter 4 and can be found on page 1170 of the Church Bibles. Galatians chapter 4, beginning to read at verse 4. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, to understand uh, the Christmas message, we can either take um, uh, one of the narratives, one of the, uh, something like uh, the visit of the Magi, um, or, or the shepherds, or we can take... Uh, a rather sort of pithy, succinct little text, usually from the epistles, which sum up the meaning of Christmas. And uh, that's what we're going to do today with those four verses from Galatians that Rupert read to us. Now, the analysis is pretty simple, really. There are only four verses. We might ask a bit, why was this the right time for God to act? Why particularly then? And what was he doing in sending his son and sending the spirit of his son? And, of course, what was the outcome for us, the beneficial outcome? Well, why was it the right time? Well, some of the reasons we can surmise from extra-biblical history and others we can learn from Scripture itself. So there was the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. The Romans were at the height of their uh, whatevers, um, you know, they were at the height of their powers under Caesar Augustus. It was the high point of the Roman Empire, an empire which covered most of what is now Europe, North Africa, Turkey, and the Near East. A time when Roman rule prevailed, a time of peace, order, and an effective infrastructure for transport, communications, commerce, and trade. And then there was the common language, common Greek, kind of simple Greek. And it was the language of commerce and trade, particularly in the eastern half of the empire, which had previously been in the hands of the Greeks due to the conquests of Alexander the Great before the Romans took charge around 63 BC. Now, peace and a common language are essential for the rapid, widespread communication of ideas. But also at this time, the old pagan religions with their pantheons of gods were losing their hold. People couldn't really take them seriously. And the human philosophies dreamt up to replace them, such as Stoicism and Epicureanism, never seemed to correspond to life as most people experienced it. It was all right for the idle intelligentsia sitting around in the Parthenon in Athens, but not for the common man. So there was an emptiness looking to be filled and an ignorance looking for answers. 
And then as far as the Jews were concerned, the Old Testament law had done its work preparing the way for Christ. They'd come to realize that they could never live up to the demands of the law and that as such they were trapped as condemned men, imprisoned under it. Only God could redeem them from imprisonment and set them free for life with him. So, when the time had fully come, or as it's also said, in the fullness of time, God did two things. He sent his Son, and he sent the Spirit of his Son. So, verses 4 and 5, he sends his Son. Now, the purpose in sending his Son was to redeem and to adopt, not just to rescue us from being imprisoned and trapped in slavery, but to make slaves into sons. Now, a word of explanation is needed because Paul's using a metaphor from the Greco-Roman world, from its legal system, not the Jewish one. And uh, it's referred to in chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. What I am saying is this, that as long as an heir is under age, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces or the principles of this world, is another way of uh, translating it. Now, what's the background to this? Well, if you were a wealthy Roman, a patrician, as they would have called you, you would have made a will and specified when your son should inherit your estate in the event of his death. Now in the UK, the age of majority, as it's also called, when you're kind of fully grown up, as it were, considered an adult, used to once be 21, then it became 18. But in Roman times, the age of majority was around about 14, although they seemed to have some degree of flexibility permitted. So if a father died before his son reached that age of majority, he would be placed under the supervision of a tutor. The tutor would control the boy's inheritance, in other words, the father's estate. The tutor was both a guardian, looking after the person, and a trustee, looking after the property. So the boy was under the control of the tutor, and as such, he was really in no better place than a slave, even though he would one day inherit everything as determined by his father's will. When the time arrived, everything changed at a stroke. The tutor was dismissed, the boy was free from being under his discipline, and he was able to enjoy his inheritance. And Paul is saying that something very similar has happened. The old age of minority has given way to a new age of majority, and these two epochs are separated by a single day. In the first period, our age of minority, we were like children, Galatians 3.3, like a Roman boy under a tutor. As such, we were living just like slaves, even though, had we known it, our future destiny was to be like our father's. Now, to what were we enslaved? 
Well, elemental spiritual forces is how the NIV opts to translate it. You could translate it the basic principles of the world, a phrase which translates just one word in the original, stoichia, which means fundamentals of something. Like letters of the alphabet are fundamental to writing, like numbers are fundamental to arithmetic. In the New Testament, it's used like that in Hebrews 5.12 when it speaks about the elementary truths of God's word. In other words, the basics of the Christian faith, of God's great plan. But it could also be used, as in 2 Peter 3.10, referring to the fundamental constituents of the material universe, earth, air, fire and water, as they would have understood the things in those days. But it could also be used in the sense in which the NIV opts to translate it. The fundamental forces at work in the spiritual or unseen universe as they battle to control life on earth. For the Jews, that would have been demons and angels. For some Greeks, various cosmological deities. And for other Greeks, the battle of ideas, pagan philosophy. Now, how's Paul using this word stoichia here? Well, one of the obvious, well, the one way and the most obvious is it's a reference to the Old Testament law. In uh, chapter 3 of Galatians, you might like to have a look, uh, 24 and 25, Paul compared the function of the law with the role of a tutor in a boy's early education and discipline. And if we link that passage to what's in chapter 4, 1 to 3, it seems certain that one of these principles, which Paul says holds the world in bondage during the period of its spiritual minority, must be the law, as he puts it in 3.23. We were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So that's the picture. We've looked at the law, we have tried to live up to it, uh, we realise we can't. We are condemned by it. We're trapped, hopeless, enslaved by it. But there's more to it than that, because Paul writes in chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather you are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? The words principles, stoichia again, is the same word that he's used before. But he can't here be referring to the Old Testament law at this time, for he's speaking directly to the Galatians, who were pagans before they were Christians. They were slaves, he argues, not to the law, because they didn't know about the Old Testament law, but to those who by nature are not gods. In other words, the Christians in Galatia were trapped in the worship of pagan idols, or man-made philosophies. And yet, clearly, these false deities in Paul's mind also belong to the general category of the sort of basic principles of the, uh, of the world, or as they translate it, elemental spiritual forces. And they imprisoned people in the pre-Christian era, and the implications of this are rather startling. As we've seen, the leading characteristic of the earlier period, which we've called the world's spiritual minority, is bondage. Paul insists that this is so whether we are Jews or Gentiles. The only difference our cultural background makes is 
what it is that holds us in bondage. For some, like the Jews, the bondage is to religious, religious, religious rules. You see, ironically, the law which, gave us, which God gave us as a guardian to provide moral education and to limit the extent of evil in society arising from sinful, rebellious natures becomes a cruel tyrant and holds us in chains of guilt or condemnation. For others, like the Galatians, that bondage is to pagan philosophy and pagan religion. The spiritual instincts that all human beings have, which generate kind of thoughts about trying to make sense of life and how it arose and how we're to live and who's there and all, all what, is, like the Old Testament, God-given because human beings ask questions about ultimate meaning and not finding too many answers, devise religions for themselves because they possess an innate awareness of God and the mystery of existence. But just as our human sinfulness turns God-given law into legalistic bondage for the Jew, so it turns God-given spirituality into bondage to idolatry for the Greek. Everywhere, therefore, the early period of human history was characterized by slavery, slavery to the fundamental components of the old order of things, the principles of the fallen world, Jewish law, pagan gods, and human philosophy. The precise identity of our jailer depends on how and where you were brought up. But whether you're Jew or Gentile, enslaved is what you are. Until the age of majority, determined by the Father arrives, when we read in verse 4, but God. But when the time had fully come, God sent his Son. And he sent him to redeem us and to adopt us, not simply to rescue us from slavery, but to make slaves into sons. We're not told here how redemption was achieved, but we know from Galatians 1.4, that it was by the death of Christ and by Galatians 3.13 that his death was a curse-bearing death. What is emphasised here is that the one whom God sent to redeem us was perfectly qualified to do so. He was up for the job. He was, on the one hand, God's son, but he was also born of a human mother, so that he was human as well as divine, the only, the one and only, God-man. And he was born under the law, that is, of a Jewish mother into a Jewish nation and subject to the Jewish law. Throughout his life, he submitted to all the requirements of the law and he succeeded where no one else could succeed. He perfectly fulfilled the righteousness of the law. So the divinity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, and the righteousness of Christ uniquely qualified him to be man's redeemer. If he'd not been man, he could not have redeemed men. If he'd not been a righteous man, he could not have redeemed unrighteous men. And if he had not been God's son, he could not have redeemed men for God or made them sons of God. Now, in the ancient world, there was only one way to free a slave, and that was 
by payment of a redemption price. The owner of the slave had a claim on them. Payment was required before ownership could be transferred. The law had a claim on us, for we were guilty of breaking it. The demonic spirits of wickedness had a claim on us, for we had served and worshipped them, even if their true identities had been masked to us. The only way the iron grip of such basic principles of the old age could be broken was that if those claims against us were discharged, if those moral debts were cleared, and if those sins were atoned for. And that, therefore, is what Jesus had to do for us. Remember how Paul put it earlier? He redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, 3.13. And that great deed of purchase on the cross results in God now giving us, if you like, the keys to the door. We have arrived at the age of majority. And secondly, God sent the spirit of his son, verse 6. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So there's a double sending out from God the Father. First, God sent his son into the world. And secondly, he sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, which leads us to cry, Abba, or my dear father is how I think uh, J.B. Phillips better translates it. So God's purpose was not only to secure our sonship by his son, but to assure us of it by his spirit. He sent his son so that we might have the status of sonship, and he sent his spirit so that we might experience it. And this comes through what can best be described, I think, as a affectionate, confidential intimacy as we access God in prayer, in which we find ourselves assuming the attitude and using the language, not of slaves, but of sons. So the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit witnessing to our sonship and prompting our prayers is the precious privilege of all God's children. It's because we are sons that God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. Once we have been redeemed, we are adopted because we are God's children. God has sent his son's spirit into our hearts. One follows the other as night follows day. It is a total package. It is not possible to separate one aspect of it from the other. You can do it, of course, linguistically, as we are doing it this morning, but you certainly can't in either status or experience. It's not possible in our experience to distinguish between God's Spirit, the Spirit of his Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are as one. They are one and the same. We are redeemed, adopted, and indwelt, or we are nothing. And so what's the outcome? Well, it's clear that we are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you're a son, God has made you also an heir. There's more to come. What we are as Christians, as sons and heirs of God, is not through our own merit, nor through our own effort, but through God, through his initiative of grace, 
who first sent his son to die for us and then sent his spirit to live in us. For being justified by faith, we are no longer viewed by God as part of rebellious creation. We are seen as part of his divine family. More than that, we are regarded as part of his adult family, sons and daughters who have come of age and are free to enjoy the liberty and the inheritance that comes with it. Now, to be justified, as we close, means to be forgiven by God for your past sins and acceptance of you for the future. But to be adopted means to be picked up as an abandoned orphan and placed in a new family with God as your father and other Christians as your brothers and sisters. Now, justification is the primary blessing because it meets our primary spiritual need, the need for forgiveness. It is also the fundamental or foundational blessing, because from it, everything else that goes with salvation assumes it and rests on it, including adoption. But adoption is the highest blessing, because it is a secure, intimate, developing relationship with God himself. Just compare the two for a moment. Justification is a forensic idea. It's conceived in terms of law, viewing God as judge. All that is true. Adoption is a family idea, conceived in terms of love and viewing God as father. So adoption should be for the Christian our controlling thought the normal way in which we see ourselves. We should see ourselves primarily as a child of our Heavenly Father. We have been justified. The foundation is firmly set and on that is built our new relationship. And it's the basis in which we as Christians behave. We imitate our Father. We glorify the Father. In other words, we make sure he gets the credit for any good we might do. We also aim to please the Father. And it is the way in which we primarily approach him in prayer. Adoption also gives us the best insight into what awaits us at the end, what eternal life, what our inheritance will be like. It is a guaranteed inheritance. It means we will share in the glory of Christ, our elder brother, who we will be like. And it tells us that eternity will be a family gathering. Adoption also helps us understand the relationship between law and grace. True, justification frees us from having to keep the law as a means of earning salvation. Adoption, however, lays an obligation on us to keep the law, to please the Father. And finally, adoption considerably helps our understanding of assurance. In English law, an adoption order cannot be undone except in extremely limited set of circumstances, which means that it is incredibly rarely granted. Three times in 30 years, I understand. So if we have 
genuinely become a child of God, God, will, God our Father will not abandon us, not now, nor on the last day. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we reflect on these few verses, we see the perfect balance between objectivity and subjectivity, between what had to happen and what we subsequently experience. We thank you that you sent your Son at just the right time to die for our sins, so your justice could be satisfied, we could be declared right with you. And we thank you that you sent the Spirit of your Son into the hearts of those who received him so that we might know that, and that we might know you as Father, and that we might no longer be either picturing ourselves in some dark dungeon in a hopeless position, or to see ourselves as isolated little orphans scattered around the world looking for a family to belong to. We thank you, you have liberated us from one and put us into the other. May we express our gratitude by the way we live our lives. Amen.